Hello everyone. Today's reading will be from Zechariah verses chapter 3 verses 1 to chapter 4 verses 10 and it can be found on the church bibles on page 669. Then he showed to me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen, has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who were men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes, and on that stone I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Then the angel who talked with me returned and walked, wakened me. As the Lord has wakened from his sleep, he asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels on the lights. Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain before Zerubbabel? Will you become level ground? Then he will bring out the capstones to shout of it, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Last week, I, I didn't end up, I didn't tell you what ended up happening with my uh, combi restoration project. I just kind of left you hanging there. I told you that I had it sitting there in the rain week after week and I was regretting having ever bought it and that I was thinking I'd, I'd bitten off more than I could chew. In fact, I felt like I faced a whole heap of obstacles when it came to restoring that combi. One of the obstacles I faced was that combis have this urge to just rust spontaneously almost. They just love to sit there and and rust no matter what you do in all sorts of difficult places. Like I'd lift up the mat and then where your feet would go when you're sitting in the front of the combi, there'd be rust holes and all sorts of other places too. And for me, working with metal has never really been my thing. I, um, I prefer to work with wood, but they don't make too many cars like that. 
Another obstacle that I faced was being at Bible college. I just didn't have that much money at that time and I didn't really have any decent tools or, or the workshop that I needed to, um, to restore it. But probably the biggest obstacle that I had was that I can sometimes be a bit of a perfectionist and unless I know that the job is going to end perfectly, I hate to even start it. In the end, somehow, I think it was out of desperation, in the summer holidays, I managed to get over those obstacles. And with the help of um, Cathy and, and family, I managed to get the job done on restoring the combi. Cathy and my mother-in-law helped sew the curtains and reupholster the seat. Some friends helped me rewire the combi and put in a 12-volt um, fridge and a spare battery. My brother-in-law let me use his workshop and some of his spare materials that he had lying around and together we built benches and cupboards and a sink. And somehow I let, I let go of my ideals and instead of trying to weld, which I had no idea how to do, I just bought a whole heap of putty and filled those rust holes. <laughs> and in the end, having gotten past all those obstacles, I thought it looked pretty good. Don't you reckon? And now I, I, I still wish I had it. And when I'm driving in New South Wales, I'm always kind of looking for it. Last week, we saw that God's people were in the middle of their own restoration project. A far more serious one, a huge one. But they'd hit some pretty big obstacles. Remember, it's, it's 520 BC. It's nearly 70 years that have gone by since the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. They've come back from Babylon where they were exiles and through Haggai and and Zechariah, God's prophets, they've been commanded to, to get on with rebuilding the temple, this restoration project. But it was proving really hard. I mean, think about some of the obstacles that they had to overcome. They had physical obstacles, they had financial ones, They had political obstacles, they faced psychological obstacles, they had all of these and more, but the biggest obstacle that they faced in rebuilding the temple was a spiritual one. Today, we're going to see three of these obstacles and we're going to see how it is that God tells them that He's going to overcome them. Last week also, you might remember, we saw that one sleepless night, Zechariah had eight visions that were all different but related to each other. Today we're going to look at the two visions that lie at the very heart of those eight and actually capture the heart of those eight visions. And we're also going to look at a bonus vision from God that comes to Zechariah at the end of these eight visions. And these three messages that we're looking at today, they're quite different to those visions, those other six visions that we saw last week. Because all three messages from God today involve real-life people from Zechariah's day. In the vision in chapter 3, we've got the high priest called Joshua. And in the vision in chapter 4, we have the governor of, of Jerusalem called Zerubbabel. And at the end of the eight visions, in chapter 6, we again have Joshua, the high priest. Now, some of the details are a little bit hard to understand. Who am I kidding? All of the details are very hard to understand. Those who've been in community groups this week would know that. But actually, the overall message of all three 
is quite simple. So let's look at the first obstacle that they're up against in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 verse 1 again with me. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So in this vision, Zachariah sees the real-life high priest of the day, Joshua. But he sees him not in Jerusalem, but in this heavenly court, where Joshua, in this heavenly court, is the defendant. And it looks like the defence lawyer is the angel of the Lord, but the prosecutor is Satan, the accuser. In this vision, it seems that Satan is intent on trying to do whatever he can to get in the way of God's plan to return to dwell with his people, that plan that we saw last week. And Satan knows that the best way to wreck God's plan is through the failures of his people. It's the age-old trick of trying to get to someone through someone else. You know, if you really want to hurt someone you turn their own family against them or you drag their kids down into the mud, you turn them into criminals or drug addicts or gamblers or alcoholics or arrogant fools and if you do that, you'll break their parents' hearts. Well, that's exactly the kind of work that Satan has been up to with God's people and he's actually done a pretty good job of it. And there in that heavenly court, Satan is pointing out his handiwork But look what happens in verse 2, the judge gets involved. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Satan has got so far with Joshua that the flames have engulfed him. And but for the grace of God, he was as good as gone. He's been snatched from the fire itself, but he's not been untouched. In fact, he's now fully tainted. Look at what Zechariah sees in verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy rags as he stood before the angel. I have these dreams from time to time where I turn up to situations dressed inappropriately And I say inappropriate because usually I'm missing an essential piece of clothing, like my pants for a job interview or something like that. I feel the need just to check right now, it's okay. I don't think I'm alone in having these kind of dreams. I'm not sure what they mean or or where they spring from, though once I did wear my pyjama t-shirt to high school and I still feel a little bit scarred from that experience. I also went to a job interview uh, in my PE uniform when I was in year 10, and I don't think I need to tell you that I didn't get the job. Meryn did. She wore nice clothes and makeup. But as deeply scarring as those experiences have been for me, they're nothing compared to what's going on here. This is a major problem for Joshua. I didn't do this in the all-ages spot, but he's literally covered in either vomit or excrement. Could you imagine just turning up to a job interview like that. Well, he's standing before God, filthy like that, with Satan standing there, baying for his blood. 
And actually, this is not just a, a major problem for Joshua. It's a major obstacle for God's people. The high priest was supposed to be the holiest person in all Israel. And he represented the rest of the people. So if he wasn't clean and acceptable for, before God, not one of them had any chance of being acceptable before God. Here's the first major obstacle that needs to be overcome. Obstacle one, the sin of God's people. What's the use of them having a temple building when even the very best of God's people, the high priest, is completely unable to stand before God and represent them in this building? But we read, God has chosen Jerusalem and God has snatched them from the fire of his judgment and somehow... God's going to overcome this obstacle. Look at verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before me, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Think about what this is saying to God's people back then. Not only are his, his offensive garments taken away, But he's also given the garments that a high priest needs to stand before God and to represent his people. In verse 7, the angel tells Zechariah exactly what this vision means. This is what the Lord Almighty says, If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. God is going to overcome their sinfulness. And Joshua will be able to enter the the most holy place and mediate for God's people in God's presence, standing there before him. But the vision doesn't stop there. Because God is saying something to them, but God is also saying something through them about the future. Look at verse 8. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, that's the other priests, you who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. Joshua and and the other priests are not the full picture, they're just symbols of something greater to come in the future. God's going to bring his servant, the branch, from the prophet Jeremiah and other places, Zechariah knows that the branch means the Messiah, the Christ. God was going to raise up a descendant of David, a servant king. The branch is also called the stone in verse 9. See the stone I have set in front of you, Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it. This stone might be like a a precious gem with seven faces on it or it might represent, more likely, the cornerstone of the temple. The important thing about this stone is its inscription and the essence of the inscription we see in verse 9, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Joshua and, and the priests and their efforts to rebuild the temple and restart the sacrifices, they all point to the Messiah to come and to the greatest removal of sin that they can imagine. 
in one day, God will overcome their obstacle of his people's sin forever through this coming Messiah. This vision, it would have spoken powerfully to them. Powerfully to get on with the job of rebuilding the temple, knowing that God's got things in hand and looking forward to the day when God would bring the Messiah. But this vision speaks powerfully to us today as well. And doesn't it just make you stand in awe of God? We stand in awe of God not just because he perfectly points to Jesus here, though it is breathtaking, isn't it? So many years before Jesus came, here their high priest Joshua bears his own sin and and the people's sin as their representative and somehow God removes their sin from them and then 550 years later, our high priest, Jesus, or Joshua, as his name is in Hebrew, our Joshua bears our sin as our representative, even though he knows no sin, and in sacrificing himself, removes sin from God's people in one day. It's breathtaking. The, the symmetry is beautiful. But what's truly breathtaking and and what speaks to us powerfully still today is that not only does Jesus deal with our sin and, and remove our guilt before God, He clothes us in everything that we need to stand before Him. It's not like Satan's accusations are unfounded. It's just that God's love and His commitment to His people is so great that he overcomes the obstacle of our sin. Have you been wondering why God gives Zechariah visions, especially such confusing ones? Why not just give the interpretation, you know, which is pretty much always there in the passage anyway, this is what it means. Why not just say in dot points, I'm going to overcome the obstacle of my people's sin, so Joshua can be a legitimate high priest until I send the Messiah, transmission over. Why not just put it like that? Well, at least part of the reason is because we can hear the bare facts and yet miss the raw power of what they mean. But the picture of standing before God filthy, with Satan by you, accusing you, and God removing our filthy clothes and giving us clean ones, it helps us start to feel the true wonder of this, like we should feel it. Just this, this week at Mawson Lakes, at the university campus there, I helped out just a tiny bit with their, their Jesus week, their mission week that they've got going on. They had some surveys asking people, how do you think God feels about you? And um, on these survey sheets, people could circle which emoji represented how they thought God felt about them. And the most common one that was circled was a smiling face. And then the next question was, on what basis did they think that they could know that God felt that way about them? And all the people I saw ticked the box because of the good things I've done. They have no idea that we stand before God not just inadequate, but filthy. 
And what that means is that they have no idea of just how breathtaking it is that God so loved his people and is so committed to his plan to dwell with them that in Jesus he dies in their place so that Satan no longer has any accusation to make against us. They've got no idea of just how breathtaking this is. But we know. Because we know how God sees us without Jesus. And so this picture reminds us of the wonder of what God has done for us in Jesus. So that later on when we sing before the throne of God above, we, we can really mean it and feel it when we sing these words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The next vision that Zachariah sees is incredibly complicated in the details, but again, the message is simple. In chapter 4, Zechariah sees a gold lampstand. Now, a lampstand like this should make us think of first the tabernacle and then the temple, Solomon's temple, which had 10 of these lampstands. But there's some differences to this one as well. Look at what Zechariah sees in verse 2. He says... I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it, with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now, a lampstand in the temple needed the priests to maintain it, to keep it burning. But what's strange about this vision is that this lamp seems to be automatic. It's got a bowl on top for collecting oil, it's got pipes running to the lamps... And the olive trees are there beside it, supplying the oil to it. So what does it all mean? If you're confused by this vision, and if you were confused during the week in your community group, you join a long list of confused people, including Zachariah himself. Three times he asks the angels, the angel, you know, what's going on? And the angel seems to delay telling him, I think he's enjoying his ignorance. But we're told in in verse 6 what it means. And it's quite simple, really. But what's hard is to see the connection between its meaning and the actual details of the vision of what he sees. We'll come back to that. For now, look at verse 6, where the angel tells us what it all points to. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Zerubbabel is the governor of Jerusalem. And in this critical phase of rebuilding the temple, he needs to keep this word very clear in his mind. It's not human strength or power that's going to see the temple built. It's going to happen only by God's spirit. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that the temple is going to magically pop into existence. God is going to bring it about by His Spirit through Zerubbabel's work. This vision, it, it addresses another obstacle that they face in rebuilding the temple. This is the second obstacle. They were facing a mountain 
of earthly human barriers. And the temptation was to rely on human strength and power to get the job done and not on the Holy Spirit. But God says to Zerubbabel, he laid the foundation and he's going to complete the temple. Look at verse 7. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. As Zerubbabel struggles to make things happen to rebuild the temple, it would actually be very easy for him to fall into one of of two real dangers. On the one hand, it would be very easy to despair when things weren't going according to plan and to try harder and, and to force things through. Or the other danger, when his efforts were succeeding, would be to feel pride. But in this vision, God says neither are appropriate. Because it's God who's going to overcome the obstacles that Zerubbabel faces. No doubt Zerubbabel had days when he thought, we can do this, we've got it sorted. And then there were probably other days where he thought, no we can't, this is hopeless. But neither way of thinking is right. Look at verse 10. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since... The seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. God says to Zerubbabel, they can do it, but only because his spirit has got it sorted. And the Holy Spirit is working even in the things that seem small and hopeless. So that's the meaning, but how does it connect to the vision of the lamp? Well, the lamp probably represents God's presence dwelling with his people. So God here is again saying that he's going to return and dwell amongst with his people. But what's less clear in the vision is what these two olive trees represent. These two trees that are supplying oil to the lamp. Who is it that fuels the lamp? Or... Who is it that facilitates God's presence being there amongst his people? God dwelling with his people again. That's what really has got Zechariah stumped. Now, it, it could be that it's Zechariah himself. And that would explain why the angel is so surprised that Zechariah can't seem to figure out. Do you really not know? The two trees could be the two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai. These prophets who through them... The Holy Spirit is working to bring about God dwelling with His people as they give the message, rebuild the temple. That's actually not a bad option. But probably the best option for who these two olive trees are is Zerubbabel and Joshua. As they get on with with building the temple and, and restoring the sacrifices, restarting the sacrifices, through them, the Holy Spirit is working so that God will again dwell with His people. I don't know if you feel this or not, but this strange vision to Zerubbabel speaks clearly and powerfully to anyone who wants to be involved in God's kingdom. Even today, two and a half thousand years later, when we face an obstacle in our walk with God, isn't our temptation to think that we've got to rise to the challenge? We've got to be everything that's needed in that moment whether it's leading a community group 
or being a, a jam leader in our kids' program or a fixed leader with our teenagers, or whether it, it's talking to our family or our workmates about Jesus, or even just bringing up our kids to know and love Jesus, it's easy to think it's up to us. We've got to make it happen. It's very easy to, to rely on our, our, creative, our creativity or our, our winsome personality or our logic or our persuasion. Or as a church, trying to reach the northeast for Jesus. It's so easy to think that it, it's up to us. We've got to make this happen. We need better flyers, better coffee, better programs, better preachers. Better music, better venue, or at least better heating. Or as society slips away from any knowledge of God, we can think, we've got to make this happen. We need to do something big, something huge to win people back. But God's word to us is the same. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And when things do go well, don't we have the same danger to rejoice in our own strength and power? Or when things go terribly, don't we feel the temptation to despair? Our danger is the same. We can think, we can take this mountain on. We've got it sorted. Or another danger is to think, Nothing I can do can take this mountain on. It's too big. Both options come from a complete lack of faith. How often do we just refuse to get on with the job because we actually despise the day of small things? The conversation just seems too insignificant. We already know what will happen. We know that they're not interested. We know that we get nowhere with jam or fix... Nobody seems to be growing in our community group. But God says to Zerubbabel and to anyone who would put their hand to being involved in his, his kingdom, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. And he says, do not despise the day of small things. Confidence in the spirit of God and not in our own might will drive us to prayer and also, confidence in God's Spirit will drive us to action, content to get on with the small things. The final message from God that we're looking at very briefly today wasn't a vision at all. Instead, God calls on Zechariah to do a symbolic action. Look at verse 11 with me in chapter 6. He says to Zechariah, "'Take the silver and gold,' And make a crown and set it, on the, set it on the head of the high priest Joshua. This is a pretty confusing thing to do. Why on earth is a priest being crowned here with this double crown of, of silver and gold? He's not from David's tribe. He's not a descendant of David. But it gets even more confusing. Look at verse 12. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says... Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Here Joshua is being told that he's the branch and he'll build the temple. 
To understand the meaning of this, we've got to keep in mind from the first vision that Joshua is symbolic of the branch to come. That's what we saw in the first vision. And so with that in mind, in verse 13, we see that this whole episode is symbolic and we see what it's pointing to. It is He, it is the branch who will build the temple of the Lord and He will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on His throne and He will be a priest on His throne and there will be harmony between the two. The Messiah is going to come at some point in the future. There'll be some further temple building project and the Messiah will be both a king and a priest and will bring these two roles together in perfect harmony. What's going on here is that another obstacle is being overcome. In a very short time they're going to have a temple and they're going to have a high priest but this is the third obstacle, what they don't have is a king. They won't have a descendant of David sitting on the throne. And God is saying to them here that it's okay. For now, it's enough for them to just have Joshua the high priest, as long as they also have the expectation of the Messiah to come. And in fact, the Messiah to come is going to bring together the priesthood and the monarchy, which is exactly what we see in Jesus, our king and our priest, the lion and the lamb. All three messages that we've seen today speak of obstacles that God was going to overcome for them in their time. And to all three obstacles, God points them to his ultimate solution for all people in all times. God was going to bring someone who'd overcome these obstacles completely for good once and for all. In Jesus, we see the one who saves his people from their sins. The one who removes sin in a single day. In Jesus, we see the one who silences Satan's accusations as he takes on our stained clothes so that he can clothe us in his righteousness. And then the next barrier, in Jesus, we see the one who builds God's kingdom, not by might, nor power, but he builds God's kingdom by the Spirit. We see the one who moves mountains. And yet, we see the one who doesn't despise the day of small things, but lowers himself even to death on a cross. We see the one who is himself the temple, building us into a living temple by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then, in Jesus, we see the branch the one who is both priest and king, clothed with majesty, ruling on the throne as our great high priest, the king and the priest that we desperately need. In Jesus, we see God overcoming every obstacle so that he can dwell with his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus for the way he overcomes every obstacle to you living amongst us. Lord, we pray that um, as we study the book of Zechariah, that you will open our eyes to see the way that you work in this world and the way that you 
call us, Lord, to um, know Jesus and to live for what he's doing in the world. Father, help us to lean on you and your Spirit's work in this world. Lord, help us not to rely on ourselves, our own might and our own power. Help us to look to Jesus and the work he's done on the cross and the Holy Spirit that he's poured out amongst us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.